0: Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot uh, and another one of our artist profiles I'm Matt Risby, Uh, hello uh, and joining me as uh, usual is uh davis how the devil are you sir yeah very well i uh,
1: i've as as usual i have prepared for this by watching a bunch of films by the artist in question uh and in this case that meant rewatching one of the worst films i've ever seen
0: yep so um, uh,
1: this will be an interesting one i think
0: yeah yeah um we're gonna do um eddie murphy which will come as no surprise to anyone listening well. to our last artist profile because we'd have told you then Um, as uh, regular listeners to The Alternate 100 will know um, that Eddie Murphy's done uh, some pretty amazing things Um, but as his career developed, he also did some pretty terrible things Um, and uh, he's kind of just one of those people who's got a really fascinating career Uh, if you view it as a whole um, I don't know whether it's fair to say that his career might be seen as a cautionary tale, Ed
1: insofar as that it's a really good example of of someone who shined incredibly brightly very briefly and then just kind of took the money yeah but i think i don't feel it's like a case where he was screwed over by hollywood in the same way that uh say someone like richard pryor was who was kind of mm. his obvious immediate predecessor um i think it was just more a case that he went where the money was and I think he more or less did what he wanted to do but unfortunately that meant what he wanted to do was make a lot of money and not really care about the, the uh, quality of the projects
0: yeah yeah interesting fellow Mr Murphy um, obviously he got his start uh, in stand-up he was kind of performing stand-up at a, a kind of a really young age I think he was like in his in his kind of mid to late teens when he started doing stuff Um and then got his breakthrough on Saturday Night Live, um, uh, a show of which we're both fans, um, and he's kind of rightly credited with uh, being the person who kept that show on the air. Yeah,
1: because Lorne Michaels left, along with pretty much all of the original cast or the, the pretty much everyone involved with the what's kind of considered the legendary seminal run of uh, 1975 to 1980, and he was one of the... Uh, the new hires of the uh, 1980 season didn't really distinguish himself there, but was one of the few people to survive when they fired everyone again because the 1980 season was legendarily horrible mm-hmm. uh, and truncated, and everyone said it was one of the worst things to ever air on television, or at least everyone involved with Saturday Night Live want to maintain the uh, the legend of that show has said that. And he pretty much through the sheer force of his personality, uh, kept that show on the air, really. He was the, the kind of talking point. You know, his his characters were the ones that everyone was quoting and uh, as evidenced recently by uh, the third season of The Americans, which takes place in 1982 and made free, frequent references to having the young teenage son of the main couple uh, reference Eddie Murphy jokes.
0: Mm, mm. Um... And he uh, kind of, his relationship soured uh, with the show where he kind of went on to uh, bigger and better things. Um, but he kind of fell out with uh, people, I think, on the... It was it off the back of something that David Spade had said, uh, by all accounts, which seems like a quite a petty thing to uh, fall out with. And, and he kind of had nothing to do with the show or any of the reunions, right? Uh, only up until the 40th anniversary, which was this year.
1: Yeah, uh, I'm that the, the, everyone seems to be very kind of coy about why he didn't show up i think he has said at various points oh no it wasn't because uh it wasn't because of anything anyone said but the schedules just didn't line up it's like i'm not sure how schedules don't line up for 30 years mm-hmm. um, that seems like more of a concerted effort not to show up at all and um yeah his uh it, it was kind of amazing to see him at the SNL 40 event, and then it immediately was underwhelming.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and it was really weird and uncomfortable and kind of a little bit like uh, something that everyone had been wanting to happen for such a long time, and then when it did happen, it kind of almost may as well not have.
1: Mm, And then uh, Norm Macdonald went on that epic kind of uh, Twitter story where he talked about how initially he was going to take part in the Celebrity Jeopardy sketch. Where he was going to be the he was essentially going to be the punchline of it all. Where he was going to show up to play Bill Cosby, and then they would cut away from it. And Eddie Murphy just said that he he ultimately didn't feel comfortable with making fun of that. But when I read that, I thought actually that would have been an amazing end to that routine. And uh, I think it's it's probably a sign of how late in the day they made that change that they just didn't have any time to come up with anything else for him to do except to come on stage and just kind of say, a bunch of platitudes and then go away.
0: Mm. Um, and bungle a, a a segue into an advert break, mm-hmm. uh, which is kind of my abiding memory of his, his appearance. I mean, we said he got his start in stand-up. I mean, that is slightly understating it. He is continually kind of voted in the very best uh, stand-ups of all time, isn't he?
1: Yeah, he's kind of seminal. I think that there's very few... Certainly, very few kind of black comedians who probably uh, haven't been influenced by him in some way. It's certainly, people like Chris Rock and and of that of his generation, you know, I think he was probably a huge influence for them. But just I think uh, stand up in general, any stand up really, just watching someone with that amount of energy and that uh, ability to kind of really hammer home a punchline—it's uh, hard not to watch that and and just look at hundreds and hundreds of stand ups and say, yeah, I can see. Where they've kind of cribbed that from uh, watching Hedy Murthy, Raw, or Delirious over and over again.
0: I mean, when watching those shows now, kind of like uh, 30 years on, some of it has is kind of horrifyingly uh, kind of uh, out of step with modern attitudes, uh, especially uh, some of the kind of more homophobic uh, uh, bits of material. Mm. Um, but it's very hard not to watch you know, the next bit he'll do, which will be, you know, his famous bit about the girl dropping the ice cream or uh, his amazing bit about James Brown and none of his band being able to understand anything James Brown is saying <laughs> um, is remarkable. And they're kind of, we're well, watching him in kind of full flow. He's kind, of, uh, kind of exhilarating, electrifying.
1: Yeah, it, he, again, to kind of cite, Prior, it's kind of falls in that same realm where you can take issue with some of the material in terms of you know from whatever your moral or, or social views are, but from a pure kind of craft perspective, it's kind of it's kind of astonishing, um, which uh, you know kind of takes you a little bit too far into the well, Lenny style was a really good director uh, area, yeah. but you <laughs> know it, it is kind of undeniable just how what a force he was and you can see why you know he he put out two albums and then for the third one they said yeah we need to release this as a feature film Mm. which you know i don't think there were many uh many stand-ups of that era who could say that (laughs) they they could go from uh being an unknown comic to being a huge tv star to being one of the hugest movie stars in the world in the space of a handful of years
0: Mm. And it's worth noting as well that when they released his stand-up in cinemas, it took like $50 million uh, in the early 80s, which is quite a significant amount of money.
1: Yeah, I think it's still... I, I imagine certainly if you adjust for inflation, it's almost certainly the biggest selling, uh, the the highest grossing stand-up film of all time. Uh, it's mm. probably that or Richard Pryor and the Sunstret strip.
0: Right, yeah, yeah, most likely. And that's the kind of level he's, he's at. Um, he's talking about his uh, beginnings in stand-up is probably a nice way to segue into um, the first film we're going to talk about. Uh, we're going to talk about his breakthrough film, um, which we've talked about before, um, so we won't dwell on it an awful lot. Um, but it is quite obviously the brilliant 48 Hours. Okay, what's the deal? It's a
1: long shot, but Billy used to work at this club over here as a bartender. I heard him talk about it before. This neighborhood, they're going to make me for a cop right away. All right, you just back me up, pretend like you got a piece, all right?
0: What the fuck I want to do that for? Hey, they may beat the shit out of me, but I'll guarantee you they'll cut your black ass right up. What, for you a badass? You know, it's amazing how far a gun and a badge it take some guys.
1: Bullshit attitude and experience is what gets you through, come on.
0: That film really does, uh, I mean, it's a great film, anyway. That's that's the first thing that should be said. It's a hugely entertaining uh, kind of abrasive action comedy. Um, but it it does a great job of transposing uh, Eddie Murphy's stand-up persona into a kind of dramatic role um, but not just being a kind of like we'll let the cameras roll and you just say something until we think it's funny and then we'll cobble it together.
1: Yeah, it definitely feels like something that has been written and carefully constructed and obviously Mm. they're playing to his strengths which is as kind of a motor mouth and, and a very smooth operator but... It doesn't feel like, yeah, like you say, it's not like they haven't gone a whole judapatau approach to it or whatever where you just kind of let the person riff and then kind of hope that something good comes out. It's more a case that they seem to be allowing him to eek uh, the best that he can get out of every line. And also, you know, it helps that he is paired up against uh, Nick Nolte who uh, in that role is perfect for that role because you can really believe he's a horrible, grizzled racist. <laughs> mm. And I think that if you don't believe that dynamic, that film falls apart. But uh, I think in terms the the contrast between the two is so incredibly stark that it really, really works.
0: Uh, it's probably fair to assume that Nick Nolte is the kind of actor who probably wouldn't want to stand around watching someone uh, ad lib for hours. <laughs> um, so I think that there's there's a certain kind of brutal economy to the scenes they have to with each other, and you get the very real impression that. Uh, if it didn't kind of get from A to B as quickly and as uh, as kind of uh, you know in the best possible way, then not what you're probably going to start swinging.
1: And also, you have uh, Walter Hill, who was someone who was kind of legendary for his economy, as as uh, evidenced by the screenplay for The Driver, which didn't have any character names and was just incredibly terse and and kind of sparsely written. And I think that combination was probably allowed. Is what makes it feel so. Kind of focused, you know, if you look at some of his later films like, um, like Beverly Hills Cop, which he made a couple of years later, or uh, Trading Places, which was his second film, and that's a hell of a one, two, three, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> to to kind of come out the gate with those three films. There's a there's something a little kind of looser to it in a sense that people are uh, maybe slightly in awe of his star power at that point and allowing him a little more lassitude, whereas this is a case of going. You've never made a film before, you know, let us kind of take a lot of the, let us kind of focus you and kind of point you in the right direction.
0: Mm. And it's it's kind of, it says something about his uh, magnetism that, like, he wasn't the star of that film. It's a, it's a kind of twin billing between him and Nolte. Um But he kind of rides roughshod over the entire film. There's not really a moment where you kind of can't, Inextricably link Murphy to every kind of fibre of that film,
1: mm, and and also it's one of those cases where you can th- where you think obviously they did meet, make a sequel with both of them years later, but you you kind of get the feeling that if uh, Nick Nolte had wanted to do it and Eddie Murphy just kept saying no, they wouldn't have made it. But if it was the other way around, they would have still made it and cast like Sean Penn or something.
0: Mm. Yeah. Yeah worth worth noting that like i say he's followed it up with uh trading places um which um is again a hugely i mean apart from kind of near the end where it kind of does lose its way a little bit where it falls into who's got a funny wig and can do a funny impression um <laughs> yeah type kind of shenanigans some is, regrettable stuff there is, is some. i mean dan Aykroyd does black up um, and um, the the principal from the Breakfast Club is raped by a gorilla, um, <laughs> and I mean that sounds. I mean that sounds like a fun night out, um, but uh, yeah, it does lose its way a little bit. But Trading Places is is um, is a brilliant piece of work, isn't it? A kind of hugely underrated film.
1: Yeah, and and also uh, an ending that is you know up there with Primer is probably one of the most baffling
0: yeah i i kind of watched it with my wife uh she'd never seen it for the first time i think kind of like last year or something and she was like i don't really get what they've done with the in the kind of the, <laughs> the stocks and trading and everything and i was like well I, can't, I kind of get it in the sense that i know that they had something and now they've got lots of it <laughs> and then I, I, I looked it up and um i found out that trading places and the end of trading places and that whole kind of uh uh um, elaborate kind of uh, shell game they play on the uh, trading floor is um, actually taught to economics students as an example of a certain type of trading.
1: Yeah, did you know that? Uh, I didn't know it was taught, but I know that that I have read kind of long, longish uh, kind of academic breakdowns of it to kind of ex- understand what happens. Because, and every time that I read that, I think, okay, I kind of get it. And then when you watch it, it goes by so quickly that again, I just get really kind of. Flustered and thinking, I'm oh, just you know, this is why I'm not on Wall Street.
0: Mm. It's good that, like, they went to the effort to make it genuine, <laughs> even, <laughs> even though no one watching it cares or will understand it.
1: Yeah, that they could have done pretty much anything to win that film, um, short of having them kind of murder kittens, and you know, the goodwill of the first hour and a half probably would have carried it through. Mm. So they kind of spent that all on an ending that is uh, almost impenetrable to someone who doesn't have a, de- a degree in economics. Uh, which is kind mm-hmm.
0: of a, a bold choice. Plus, couldn't Dan Aykroyd and Eddie Murphy account for their whereabouts uh, around the time of the 2008 financial crisis? <laughs> um, because, you know, I've got a theory they could well have been behind
1: it. but um, That that would you know. be a good uh, sequel to make now, just kind of mm. a period piece set in 2008, which just kind of explains that well, it was those guys with a, a new scheme and see if mm. their their diminished charisma can carry it through, and make people think, ah, I still like them, even though they blow up the economy.
0: Yeah, even though fat, blacked-up Dan Aykroyd was doing a, <laughs> pulling out an elaborate Ponzi scheme <laughs> uh, to ruin people's lives. Um, yeah, anyway, um, going from uh, Eddie Murphy's uh, breakthrough, uh, let's talk about what we could probably consider uh, his oddity. Uh, I've got a couple of things to consider here. Uh, we're going to talk about two films. We're going to talk about uh, Dream Girls and we're going to talk about Vampire in Brooklyn. Cadillac car, take nine. I got me a Cadillac, Cadillac, Cadillac. Got me a Cadillac car. Ooh, ooh. got me a Cadillac, Cadillac, Cadillac. Look at me, Mister, I'm a star. Ooh, ooh. Dreamgirls is held up as uh, rightly as well um, is held up as an example of Eddie Murphy acting, which seems like a novelty.
1: Yeah, that I was certainly thinking when we kind of come up with the shortlist of what could be on the oddities that one stood out as being a Eddie Murphy film in 2006 that was good, uh, and mm. so it was a real kind of he was really stretching himself there, um, but you know it is it is it is a a very enjoyable film and it, it, you again you get the sense that it's playing to his strengths because they're essentially having him revive his James Brown impersonation for the uh, character of James Thunder early, who is, uh, you know, the whole thing with, uh, with Dreamgirls is you could like rename it, not Motown because Mm. everyone is playing, you know, Beyonce is not Diana Ross, Uh, Anika Noni Rose is not Mary Wilson and, uh, and Annie Murphy is not James Brown. And he does a really great job of it. He is, hugely again energetic and really funny and entertaining and also kind of a jerk uh, mm. and it's a role that both uh, kind of burnishes and undermines his um, star power
0: mm. and also kind of brings into sharp focus his musical career mm. uh, which uh, uh, I think you'll uh, kind of know the song um, what, what was it called a party all the time yeah um, which is terrible um, but I mean, it's kind of up there with as bad as kind of uh, Bruce Willis's um, music. Um, but he, he has released like a few albums, I think, hasn't he? he? Didn't he do a song with Snoop Dogg recently?
1: Yeah, I think he did one when Snoop Dogg was briefly Snoop Lion. I'm pretty sure he he sang on his reggae album.
0: Right. What is Snoop Dogg now? He, is he Snoop? He's back. Ocelot. <laughs> I think he's back
1: to Snoop Dogg, but maybe it's like a different breed like before right. he was an Alsatian and now he's a, like a, a labrador or something. Are
0: mm, mm. uh, you you're a dog fan aren't you? Ed? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. You've, you've got a dog. I have got a dog, yeah.
0: Yeah. I was I, I don't have a dog. I've never had a dog. Um but the other day I saw a German shepherd and it was a really nice dog and I was like I think I could get on with the German shepherd. They're lovely dogs. My my uh, grandmother had one many years ago.
1: And they mm. they're very very cute uh, if uh, they're they're probably the cutest dogs when they're puppies because they're just kind of very kind of lithe and they've got very kind of curly tails and then they grow up and they look incredibly
0: vicious and they'll rip your face off yeah, yeah I don't think I could have a small yappy dog i could I could have a big dog I don't think I could have a small yappy one
1: yeah small small yappy dogs are what you get if you think you want a cat, but <laughs> a cat that runs round and constantly jumps on your head
0: right okay. Okay. Anyway, sort of segue on dogs there. (laughs) Um, uh, Vampire in Brooklyn uh, is, um, I mean, it's an oddity in the sense that it's kind of a a genre film. Well, let's just uh, kind of um, have a baseline for discussion on uh, Vampire in Brooklyn. It's crap. (laughs) Um, It's a real kind of wrong-headed mess of a film. Uh, It's a kind of supernatural vampire comedy, which just doesn't work on any level. But it's notable because it's kind of different to everything else he did.
1: Yeah, is it Wes Craven did that one?
0: Yeah, Wes Craven did that, yeah.
1: Wes, Wes Craven making... So, <laughs> not only is it Eddie Murphy deciding to do Supernatural, which he had only really done once before with The Golden Child? Was that...? Yeah, yeah. The Golden Child. Uh, and Wes Craven deciding he would do comedy. And, mm. yeah, it is it is horribly mismatched. Uh, but, you know, as is the way of these things, that that's something that makes it kind of interesting.
0: Mm. And it's just got like weird moments of kind of like really unpleasant violence and then <laughs> unfunny comedy. It's a kind of a real kind of uh, literal horror show. Um, yeah, it's, it's no fun at all. But it's, it's worth noting when we talk about Dream Girls being seen as a novelty for Eddie Murphy acting, it's it followed a kind of shift in his career um, when he kind of in the mid 90s, I guess kind of became a child, a family movie star, which is, thinking back to, uh, you know, his early stand-up material, seems kind of inconceivable that he would go and kind of do that, Um, and it's a very peculiar effect that it had, um, because he was obviously suddenly a very big star appealing to uh, families, and stuff like Dr. Doolittle, and Nutty Professor, and Uh, Daddy Daycare that's one of his as well isn't it kind of films like that Um, and it had a really weird knock on effect in the sense that I remember seeing Beverly Hills Cop um, rescheduled and re-edited on BBC television and put on a Saturday evening at 6 o'clock like on a bank holiday uh, to kind of cash in on his 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 kind of child friendly kind of family friendly uh, persona but Beverly Hills Cop is in 18, which is incredibly violent in the first five minutes where someone is shot in the head at point-blank range. And it's there's lots of coke in it. Uh, there's a lot of swearing in it. And I have to say the uh, edit that they put out uh, at 6 o'clock on a Saturday afternoon on a bank holiday, um, probably about a good 25 minutes shorter than the uh, theatrical version. Doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Yeah, I was
1: just trying to think of any film that would be even worse treated by that kind of a cut than Beverly Hills Cop. I think maybe just Scarface. Like yeah. you had to try and make a family-friendly version of Scarface. Um, it would just be about a guy arriving on Miami, in Miami.
0: Mm. And then Who likes jacuzzis and neon.
1: <laughs> yeah, there would just be... Yeah, maybe some odd shots of people dancing in a club. Mm. Uh, and that'd be it. It'd be, it'd be about 12 minutes long. It'd be heralded as an avant-garde masterpiece. Um, hmm. Yeah, I think it, it did. I, I was thinking uh, when looking at this, uh, when we're looking at, at films for discussion, trying to work out when kind of the rot set in with his career because there's kind of an image of Eddie Murphy where, like you say, he, like we were saying, he became a huge star on Saturday Night Live and then a huge movie star um, to the extent that Beverly Hills Cop was the most successful film of 1984 ahead of Ghostbusters, which uh considering the uh the 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 respective uh reputation of those two series now seems almost inconceivable that uh, a film could be more successful than Ghostbusters um and you, and so you have this kind of really it's only about 8 years where he was this huge star uh in that sense that his work was just kind of generally associated with stuff being hugely su- successful but also quite good and this mm. idea that he was kind of a comedy superstar and then like you get into the even as the as early as kind of the early 90s when he does Beverly, Hill Co- Beverly Hills Cop 3 which is uh, one of the worst sequels ever made mm. uh, and also kind of one of the signs of John Randis's, uh career taking a downturn, Uh and then so I, I thought it was and then the next twenty years are pretty much a wash, except for the odd kind of supporting performances and things like Dreamgirls and, and Tower Heist, in which he's surprisingly good. Um, mm. And there's just that, that kind of sense that for a whole generation of people, he just people just think of him as being, you know, Dr. Dolittle and uh, and the voice of uh, the donkey from Shrek, mm. uh, rather than this kind of firebrand that he was at the beginning of his career.
0: That leads us on to uh, talking about Eddie Murphy's most successful film, uh, which he does play a donkey that talks uh, in the Shrek franchise. I think number two is the most successful. Yeah. All right, hit it. Move him on, hit him up. Hit him. Move him on, hit him on. Move him down. Hide him. Move him on. Hit him up. Hit him up. Move him on. Move him on. Hit him up. We're all hide. Hide him up. Move him on. Hit up, hit up move out dead yeah that was kind of how you become indelibly um child friendly you voice a very popular cartoon character um what does eddie Murphy lend to the Shrek franchise
1: I think he's probably most emblematic of. What was really wrong with DreamWorks when they started getting into computer animated films? Which is when Dream DreamWorks were kind of competing against Disney in the nineties. A lot of their films just felt like, uh, like when they were like hand drawn animations, like something like Prince of Egypt. It just felt like a pretty much straightforward take on the sort of stories that Disney would otherwise be doing. You know, kind of set in. Um, historical periods and just kind of fairly earnest, and then with Ants onwards, they just kind of presented these stories that were kind of were heavy on pop culture, like Ants is a film in which uh, Woody Allen plays a a neurotic Ant, which is obviously based entirely on his persona, and of course appeals to kids the world over. Um, mm. And Shrek kind of took that even further, where that film and the second one in particular is just a collection of pop culture jokes and casting eddie murphy is a big part of that because it means that you can you know have a character who's just kind of sassy and can just kind of mm. constantly make references to films and songs or whatever that uh, parents would know and that kids would have no idea about and as such embodies pretty much the entire dreamworks aesthetic
0: mm. and it's it's interesting. Um... How kind of shoddy Shrek is, and how quickly it's dated mm. um, in regards to like the pop culture references, which is why I mean we've talked about this before, um, and I'm not afraid to say it. I'm an enormous fan of the film Tangled, mm. um, which is uh, takes a similar approach that Shrek does in the sense that it kind of deconstructs some of the elements of a fairy tale. This is these are things that have been done for a while now. Once you know, we're kind of living in a postmodern age, and things like Enchanted exist and uh, you know all those kind of uh, things that take apart the, fam- the the fairy tale hoodwinked is another uh and kind of like mess with it, but Shrek does it in in a quite a cheap way um like if you watch the first one there 's kind of like incredibly dated references to like the matrix and stuff and mm-hmm. they bring in kind of stunt cameo voices and stuff um and uh it kind of it just makes it feel a bit cheap,
1: yeah, and the second one really does that where you have things like the giant gingerbread man who stomps through the city and there's just kind of these really facile references to sort of Godzilla movies really there but they don't really there's no kind of specificity to it it's just a idea of a a large creature smashing up a city and that's more or less it um Mm. or um I think it's the second one that has the joke about Pinocchio wearing a thong which is really weird joke to have in a kid's film um Yes, there's just lots of things in it where it just feels like Family Guy, but with most of the kind of uh, quote unquote edgy humor removed. Where it's just kind of like, mm. and the second one also opens with a Lord of the Ring, Lord of the Rings reference, if I remember correctly. Where they, yes, yeah,
0: you know, the one with like dragons and stuff, in it, or is that all of them?
1: They all have dragons in them, but but in the first one, it's a villain, and in the second one, she's married to. I oh know the the second one, she's not in because uh, contract negotiations, they couldn't get her. Um, no, the second one, she's away for it, and then at the end she shows up with her donkey-dragon uh, hybrid babies,
0: which raises so many questions. The kind of really unpleasant ones as well, questions to which I do not want to know the answer. <laughs> but yeah, um, there's there's just something
1: about... It. They are kind of fascinating, the Shrek films, to kind of think how huge they became because the second one in particular was like I think it still is probably the most successful animated film of all time um and certainly in terms of like adjusted for inflation and stuff it was just
0: uh, oh I, I think Frozen overtook that didn't oh it? yeah yeah
1: Frozen probably yeah it, but it's it's definitely really high up there and it was this kind of huge pop culture phenomenon and then the third one came out and also did really well and the fourth one didn't really do much, I mean it still made money but it wasn't a huge hit they just kind of stopped and it's kind of weird, it feels like that whole phenomenon didn't happen now
0: because no one mm. really talks about Shrek mm. and DreamWorks finally made a good film when they, made, they kind of made the How to Train Your Dragon films which uh, kind of got finally what um, uh, DreamWorks films were lacking which was a bit of heart and a, a bit of charm
1: yeah, I think that's one of the key things that is missing from the Shrek films is that it's kind of all snark and sarcasm and not a huge amount of charm. And I think a large part of that is, as much as Eddie Murphy is, you know, kind of does the best he can with those, the character of Donkey is not really that endearing.
0: Uh, yeah, I um, remember seeing, um, to kind of like hammer home a point at how kind of charmless these films are. Um, I remember seeing a few years after I think the third one had come out. There was a kind of a Christmas special, kind of a TV spin-off type thing, mm. um, and I watched it. And, I, and then I kind of listened to the voices, and I was like, "Oh, they haven't got um, Myers or, or, or Eddie Murphy back because you know these people don't. They sound kind of a bit like them, but you know, not really like them. It's like watching the real Ghostbusters cartoon from the, the kind of eighties, nineties. It's Not really them. And then I waited to the credits, and it was them." And I was like, I bet they were just really kind of just going through the motions, not really kind of committing to the performance, and that's kind of why it feels like it's not them. You kind of get the sense with those Christmas specials that
1: you know Eddie Murphy and and Mike Mike Myers by that point were just thinking, you know, I'd really rather be doing something else. This is just you know just kind of come in for an afternoon and get it done.
0: Mm. Are they still making Shrek films? Because there was a Puss in Boots movie, wasn't there? And is that now is it now over?
1: There is a. Puss in Boots cartoon series, which I think is on Netflix.
0: Yeah, it is. Yeah,
1: um, but that's it. as far as the continued adventures of the of the characters. It's uh, it seems to be dead. I don't think they're interested in uh, pursuing it any further. Uh, no. Which is a rarity for DreamWorks, who seem to want to kind of take their any franchise that works and really run it into the ground. And mm. you know, there was still there was still a few feet of air left for them to kind of crash down with the Shrek series.
0: Mm. they like to flog a dead donkey mm. see what mm. I did there um, yeah apologies for that one um, <laughs> and apologies for bringing the next film into everyone's uh, consciousness because uh, we're going to have to talk about Eddie Murphy's worst film and there's quite a long uh, kind of uh, list that we could choose from um, but the absolute Nadir is uh Norbit I haven't touched your seat. Then why is it up so damn far? It looks like it's back as far as it goes, Rispusha. No, you move that I can tell. Cause look, when I inhale my titty, make the horn honk. Listen. You see that? That ain't right. I hear it. That scientifically proved that you were adjusting my seat. It's kind of, I mean, it's just kind of offensive on every level. And I don't, I, don't, I mean, obviously there is a kind of political correctness, kind of offensiveness level to it, but, just offensive to all humans, really.
1: I rewatched some of it today, and I say some of it because I got about fifteen minutes in before deciding oh, I've pretty much got the sense of this. Yeah, um, uh, and uh, I had forgotten that Eddie Murphy plays a Chinese man in it, Mr. Um, Wong. Yes, I remembered that. Obviously, he plays Norbert and he plays Respucia because mm. they're the ones that are featured on the um, on the box art. Um, uh, I don't want. Uh, I just realised that implies I own it on DVD. I don't. Blu-ray. <laughs> I, watched it, I watched it on Netflix, and um, yeah, it's just kind of like you think you get the sense that maybe the film would have been a bit less awful if he had cast I don't know, like James Hong or something in that role, even someone who's just vaguely Asian. Yeah. <laughs> but not him in v- what looks like fairly ropey makeup I mean Oscar winning Oscar nominated ropey makeup makeup mm-hmm. um but yeah it's just it's just kind of incredible you it, it how the film got made it's one of those things where you think I don't know how many layers of a bureaucracy this had to pass through to get made and I can't believe that no one at any point just said this is awful this is a terrible <laughs>
0: thing um, I mean Murphy is noted for playing lots of different characters in his films um, in some of the films he plays lots of different characters in you get the idea that uh, it's out of boredom uh, I think I remember reading somewhere that like he said he was kind of inspired by Doctor Strangelove and, mm. and you know how Peter Sellers plays like kind of these wildly kind of divergent characters that are kind of you know all as kind of memorable as each other and he wanted to do something similar in uh, Coming to America, where he kind of plays three or four roles. Um, and in that, he just about gets away with it. He's not Peter Sellers uh, in terms of that. It seems like he's just kind of trying to push it as far as he can go um, to keep things interesting. And then, obviously, you've got uh, Night no Professor. He plays kind of the clumps. Um, and then yeah, you know, we get to Norbit, which seems to be like someone said... Probably the same person who was asking Kevin Smith to write that spider into uh, Into Wild Wild West or whatever it was, Superman, um, says, you know, I really want to see a film that really demeans kind of black people, uh, women, the Chinese, and everybody else in the world.
1: I, I kind of wonder what if it was because at some point it became kind of on brand for him to do multiple characters, because... Like you say, initially it was because he loved Doctor Strangelove and, uh, and Peter Sellers was a huge influence on him and you can see that I think in some of those early films where he does it that, that he seems to be trying something with it but mm. I think from The Nutty Professor onwards it just kind of became a sense, oh, I'm the guy who plays multiple characters and he would just keep doing that regardless of whether or not those characters were a good idea uh, and I think it's probably telling that the best case of him playing two characters is Bowfinger, in which the two characters are like, are just him mm-hmm. with rather than in kind of fat suits and with elaborate makeup jobs.
0: Mm. And it's also worth noting that Bowfinger is an excellent film. Mm.
1: Yeah, a really great one in which uh, which is a genuinely kind of quite funny and has some sort of bite to it. Mm. Whereas uh, Norbit really doesn't. I mean, occasionally someone will say something that kind of. Has a kind of an almost kind of an echo of something interesting to say in it, like uh Terry Crews, who I love, I think he's just like one of the genuinely most naturally funny comedians out there mm. um he has a lot he plays one of Rasputsia's older brothers, and at one point he's talking to Norbit and he says to him, I'm expecting an important call today, so try and sound white <laughs> and it's just it's just really funny because he puts so much kind of intensity behind it. Um, or, um, or you know, Cat Williams just showing up as kind of a very, very ostentatious pimp or things like that. There there are just kind of things in it where you think, we've got enough funny people here that something has to happen. Something funny has to happen. But for the most part, it's just kind of this completely dead thing where they also uh, just hammer jokes into the ground, such as the joke of, uh, you know, Norbit and Rasputia get married and their first night as man and woman she kind of leaps on him and breaks the bed and then that joke is repeated four times Mm. (laughs) in quick succession never really uh, improving.
0: (laughs) Mm. It's funny you should mention um, Terry Crews there because I actually forgot he was in Norbit but the other day uh, White Chicks was on telly and I caught the fact that he was in that that guy is in both Norbit and White Chicks. Uh, no wonder he is so likable now, because he has to—he has had to, in a kind of Shawshank sense, kind of crawl <laughs> through miles of shit and piss to come out clean the other side. I, I did. It's
1: funny that um, reading the trivia for for Norbit, it did say um, it stars both that and Damon Wayans, and it said it, Terry Crews and Damon Wayans, their first collaboration since White Chicks. I kind of think. Yeah, that was something that everyone was really kind of clamouring for. <laughs> mm. That creative partnership, everyone really wanted to see them come together and do what uh, more work they could do. Mm. Um, and they've
0: said collaboration when they meet payday. <laughs> <laughs> that's um, really what's being said there. T- Terry Crews does
1: have the absolute single best moment in White Chicks, which is when he's driving one of the Wayneses in a car and he starts singing um, A Thousand Miles by Vanessa Carlton. Which is just great because he sings it with such exuberance, and mm. uh, that was uh, everyone was reminded of that moment when he did it on lip sync battle over here recently, and uh, was just hugely entertaining. But um, as as good as those two moments were, it doesn't really justify the existence of white chicks.
0: Mm. Nothing, nothing about the likability of Terry Crews and the general kind of all round awesomeness of that dude can elevate Norbit uh, out of what can only be described as a, a kind of like shitty mire of uh, awfulness. <laughs> yeah, it is it is just completely awful. And
1: there are lots of films that you kind of look at as, um, as being examples of Eddie Murphy at his absolute worst. And I think this one wins out partly because of the offensiveness of it, but I think also because he wrote it. <laughs> he He co wrote it with his brother I, the 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 fact that he kind of has his his name on it as a writer makes you think this is this is worse than if it was just kind of a uh than just kind of a studio for hire higher job that he was being la- really lazy about. this was something where he pitched an idea that a studio agreed to make
0: mm. yeah, absolutely, and more offensive than any of its content uh any of its kind of like gender politics or or kind of wasting of kind of talented people is the fact that it made a lot of money. Mm. Yeah,
1: it was a pretty sight- Well, I don't know if it was a huge hit, but it's only it
0: definitely it, like, it definitely made its money several times over.
1: Yeah, uh, and it's also it makes for an interesting contrast with Dreamgirls, which you know famously came out the same year or around about the same time, and people said that uh, Norbit cost Eddie Murphy his Oscar because he was he was Oscar nominated for his performance in Dream Girls, and I think they're they're an interesting contrast because obviously uh, Norbit is a very mean spirited film that makes a lot of kind of horrible jokes about um, fat women, and then Dream Girls is entirely a film that kind of very empathetically tells the story of a you know a woman who is kind of larger being sidelined and having tremendous uh, sympathy and empathy for her. Mm. Uh, And I think it kind of I don't think any. Kind of contrasting his career more ably demonstrates the gulf in quality in some of uh, Murthy's work.
0: Yeah, and we've talked about it before with regards to the Oscars rewarding someone who is seen as being due an award because uh, uh, you know it's been a long time coming. He lost out that year to Alan Arkin for Little mm. Miss Sunshine, which um, doesn't really hold up. Uh, little Miss Sunshine. It's definitely one of those in- little indie films that could. Uh, actually turns out you know years later to be a bit flimsy,
1: yeah, and even at the time, I think when you get to that whole dance sequence with the to the Rick James number, you kind of think this goes on for a very long time mm. <laughs> this this uh, this prolonged dance sequence, which really and truthfully is the sort of thing that you would get in any number of studio comedies, but because uh it's all very symmetrical and very brightly pastel colored
0: Mm. Um, Rick James, yeah. I, th- I think, performed a song with Eddie Murphy. So that watching Alan Arkin walk away with the that award must have been like a knife through the heart for <laughs> Murphy. Um, before we go on and talk about Mr. Murphy's crowning achievement, I'd just like to um, uh, kind of stop at this juncture to remind people um, to check out, um, if they can, the Chappelle Show episodes. Um, which feature Charlie Murphy's true Hollywood stories. I've I just kind of been r- reminded of Charlie Murphy's existence by you saying that he co-wrote Norbit, but he was a, a kind of ongoing co-star on The Chappelle Show, and that he did a segment, um, uh, a few of them, I think, um, where he would kind of tell a story <laughs> that of him and his brother's early early kind of Hollywood adventures. Um, you know, obviously he was in Eddie Murphy's entourage and all their their kind of mates were, and they would kind of do these kind of silly things and um, the way they, they put them together on the Chappelle show with with Dave Chappelle in flashback playing characters from the story such as Rick James who won't take his muddy shoes off on a couch mm. and Prince who uh, I won't spoil it for you you probably find it on YouTube but the greatest basketball story ever told
1: yeah those the whole sketch. I mean Chappelle's show in general is amazing um, mm. except for that third season where he left and they released it without him which isn't bad, but, you know, there's kind of a, a philosophical uh, kind of queasiness to its existence. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, 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 those segments were always great, even though they I think they probably contributed most to Dave Chappelle hating his audience. <laughs> just for people constantly screaming Charlie Murphy at him.
0: Which is uh, uh, never good. Um, so yeah, anyway, from you know, a low point to his high point. Uh, again, another film that we've talked about before, um, but it's that good. We're going to talk about it again. Um, we reckon Eddie Murphy's best film, his crowning achievement, is Beverly Hills Cop.
1: I see you look at this piece. Yeah, I was wondering how much something like this went for. $130,000. Get the fuck out yeah. of here. Oh, no, I cannot. It's serious because it's very important Base, Have you ever sold one of these? sounded it yesterday to a collector. Get the fuck yeah. out of here. Somebody else. I said it myself. <laughs>
0: Obviously, we talked about it on the alternate 100 as being kind of the perfect example of Eddie Murphy, who at that point wasn't a big star, and at that point was stepping into a film in which the the lead role had been vacated by, I think, uh, Sylvester Stallone and Mickey Rourke had both kind of passed on it. Don't think anyone really thought it would be a big hit, and it was a monstrous hit. Mm. Um, I think it might even hold a record for kind of R rated. Uh, film might not, anyway. Don't hold me to that. Um, but yeah, a huge hit made Eddie Murphy a huge star. Um, laid the foundations for his downfall when people started throwing money at him and said, can you, you can produce your own films and direct your own films, all that kind of stuff." Um, but it still stands testament to um, just how good he was.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, we've um, we've talked about it before, saying that essentially. That film had a very rough outline where it was meant to be for Stallone, and uh, he didn't end up making it. So they went to the comedy guy, and uh, essentially most of the scenes in the film were just built from him, kind of making them as funny as possible, or kind of ad-libbing with the other guys on the team. And uh, I think it's a testament to sort of Martin Brest as a director that he managed to kind of wrestle that and it's coherent, mm. uh, unlike the TV edit. Um, But I think it is, you know, I think it is probably, it came at exactly the right point in his career where he'd made a couple of films that were, you know, pretty successful and he was a reasonably big name who hadn't quite ascended to the stratosphere. So he was given enough leeway to kind of really push what the script would demand of him. But not to the extent that things, you know, got bad. There were still people there saying, yeah, maybe not that, or maybe try it a different way. I think that that mixture of someone who just kind of exudes energy and is kind of uncontainable, but with people who are just kind of steering, again, steering it in the right direction, like what Walter Hill did on 48 Hours, is is what is kind of creates a, a special uh, alchemy for that film that was never really replicated.
0: Mm. I mean, they attempted to replicate it, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, yeah, once... Uh, we kind of saw the uh, the strings the jig was up because uh, beverly hills cop 2 is a very mean spirited film that's a bit crap and beverly hills 3 beverly hills cop 3 um is um so tired and so lame um they really should have put the blue screen around it and shot it like a horse at the national <laughs> uh, i do think that
1: beverly hills cop 2 is interesting if only because with tony scott at the helm you kind of get a glimpse of what the original film would have been mm. because it's more of a straightforward action film that has some kind of moments of levity in it and not a huge amount, <laughs> but it's mainly just kind of a very serious 80s action film. And, you know, when when you see that and you kind of see what Martin Brest really brought to it and what, you know, uh, Eddie Murphy perhaps wanting to do comedy instead of, you know, trying to push himself or, or being willing to try something uh, more serious... You know, you, you really get a sense of what was so great about the original and what is uh, terrible about the
0: sequel. Mm. Um, and it's interesting that he won't let the Axel Foley character die. Um, mm. We have had uh, a TV show that's been kind of in development and started and installed and then was piloted and then didn't get picked up and now it's still going. I don't know, what's the what's the status with it? They shot the
1: pilot which was written by uh, Sean Ryan who was the creator of the shield and uh would have been about Axel Foley's son I think the idea that was that Eddie Murphy would have was definitely in the pilot and I think it uh, was probably the most recent thing he shot um, that wasn't SNL uh and the it never went to series so they are redeveloping uh, a cinematic sequel which uh, Recently, maybe a month or so ago, it was announced that they were going to push back the start date of filming there. Uh, And that one is being directed by Brett Ratner. So uh, I have very high hopes for that one.
0: Mm. Brett Ratner, um, as you all know, um, makes really bad films. Um, Really charmless ones.
1: Yeah, charmless ones, And uh, has a a very low opinion of uh, rehearsals and the uh, sexuality of the people who apparently rehearse.
0: <laughs> yes. Uh, Ed there is alluding to uh, what is known as the scandal, the Brett Ratner scandal, um, which is what happened um, when Eddie Murphy was supposed to be hosting the Oscars, I believe, and that all went sour pretty quickly.
1: Yeah, because uh, Brett Ratner said, "Worst the effect that he doesn't like rehearsals because they are faggy? Wow. Uh, and uh, Brett Ratner was meant to be producing the Oscars and uh, the people behind the Oscars said, maybe that's not a good idea. Yeah. And Eddie Murphy, who was meant to be hosting, uh, quit out of solidarity or or because uh, I think he just didn't want to have to get to learn a whole
0: bunch of new people's names. I mean, the thing is, I mean, if you're doing the the, the Oscars, you can't really be like, I'll oh, do it on the night. It'll be fine. <laughs> you got to kind of at least rehearse it a little bit. I mean, even Franco probably rehearsed it. I mean, when I say, <laughs> I say James Franco, not General Franco.
1: Well, he he hosted his own version of the Oscars in the seventies.
0: Mm, the Franco's,
1: yeah, they were a bit more they're a bit more lively. In the
0: uh, the losers Raw all shot. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can barely conceive. Of, but did hang on? Did Franco and Hathaway replace Murphy that year, or did they no, bring in a kind of Billy like Steve or something? Oh, Billy Crystal, yeah, yeah, that makes makes a lot of sense. Um, but yeah, so yeah, look, well, if we're gonna see a new. Beverly Hills Cop film I bet it will be under-rehearsed maybe that's why Brett and films are so terrible because (laughs) he just doesn't rehearse them it certainly seems that way
1: I think he certainly if you look going back to like the first Rush Hour film which is not a terrible film but it's a film that pretty much gets by solely on the chemistry of its two stars and you get the sense that that film was a case of where Brett Ratner showed up, pointed a camera at Chris Tucker and Jackie Chan and then didn't really do anything else.
0: Mm. And, and I think did. if I was Jackie Chan about to do an incredibly dangerous stunt, I'd be saying, uh, hey, Brett, do you wonder if we just run through this a couple of times with the stunt guys? And then Brett's there with his like, coffee and his cigars going, oh, that's faggy. don't bother doing that. And then Chan <laughs> dies of a broken neck. You know, it's just, it's just... I know that some directors like, I don't want to rehearse, I want to kind of keep the spontaneity and keep the, the magic... Uh, As it happens, but like, yeah, it's the fucking Oscars, man. There's, there's at least there's costume changes. Who, who do you think
1: would be? Because I think the the thing about the original Beverly Hills Cop that is kind of great, uh, I think you know, is that action comedy is something that's really really hard to do, and I think it's there's very few people who can do it well. Mm -hmm. Um, And really, you know, Martin Brest only did it twice with um, uh, Midnight Run and, and Beverly Hills Cop. Mm. Who do you think would be able to do it well? Because I can't really think of many people who could balance the need to sell a good joke and also have kind of really exciting action.
0: Mm. The glaring, uh, grandly obvious uh, um, uh, kind of uh, choice would be uh, Lord and Miller, uh, mm. who um, can basically turn shit into anything. Uh, the the kind of the Hollywood twosome who currently specialise in taking. Pitches or ideas that are so underwhelming that people's uh, are just blown away by how good the end results are. The guys who did uh, Twenty One Jump Street, which should never have been good, uh, Lego Movie should never have been good. Clary with The Chance of Meatballs, which was good, it, it probably should have been good. It was a uh, quite an inventive thing, but you know, probably better than anyone had any thought it would be. Um, those guys seem to be the only people I could think of,
1: mm, and there would be a certain. Uh symmetry to the idea of them directing that having turned down Ghostbusters. It's like, mm. if we're going to revive one film franchise from 1984 that really shouldn't be continued, Yeah, we'll go for Beverly Hills Cop. But yeah, I was kind of thinking, the only other person I could think would probably be Edgar Wright. Yeah. Who, again, it's kind of in the same sort of vein, someone who is someone who's a very kind of strong visual stylist who also has a knack for you know, selling a joke through the use of the camera and who is also just, you know, kind of a very kind of clever writer. Mm. But again, someone who uh, probably probably has too strong of a vision for uh, to work with someone like Eddie Murphy, who even at this point in his career weighs kind of in the doldrums, probably still has a reasonably big ego when it comes to that sort of stuff.
0: Mm. Their humour doesn't really match up either. I don't think that kind of referential, kind of uh, very nerdy and detailed and kind of like uh, uber rehearsed and uber slick and uber kind of about timing um, mm. rather than Eddie Murphy's kind of like motor-mouthed uh, kind of like steamroller comedy. Uh, yeah, The Russos would be good uh, although they're quite busy at the moment they're making um, seven Avengers films but you know they've got the comedy chops from doing community and stuff and they've also got the action chops from doing things like, well, The Avengers and Captain America.
1: And that one episode of Community,
0: yes, absolutely. Um, but yes, the, those are our saviors of the Beverly Hills Cop franchise, and that, in a nutshell, listeners, is uh, is Eddie Murphy. Um, okay, a fascinating character who's done a lot of good stuff, and a lot of weird stuff, and yeah, some royal shit. Um, but yeah, who are we doing uh, next time on the old artist Ed? Our next
1: one to veer away from the kind of director actor. Uh, kind of uh, nexus that we found ourselves in is a producer and uh, one of the most successful producers of all time, Jerry Bruckheimer,
0: which should be very interesting given that uh, Jerry Bruckheimer is someone who has made a lot of films that we don't like, um, <laughs> but uh, is you uh, can't argue with the fact that he is uh, a producer that has you know you recognise his films, um, he has a stamp on them. Uh, and I think that would be hugely interesting to talk about um yeah, so that's our next uh, eyes profile uh, We're we'll back next week with another regular show um, and until then it 's goodbye from me and goodbye from me and goodbye from me.